This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Meg Bicknell, I had tried to speak with her in May and it didn't work. And then finally I got onto her. This is one of the books that I think is definitely a must read, especially if you're in a book club. Well, let's just get it going because it's such a good one. When they do the appraisal of what makes the most livable city, one aspect is the amount of choirs it has. This book is about a choir forming in Hobart and so much more. Welcome, Meg Bignall. Thank you, Jan. Well, you've got busy Nan Caro. She's the choir director. What led her to start the West Moona Women's Choir back in 1984? Well, Busy has a long history of activism and fighting for women's rights is one of her and her mother's most passionate fields of activism. She ended up in Tasmania and the story of how that happened is detailed in the book. And she decided that back in the 80s, She had a passion for Cindy Lauper and for the shocking songs that Cindy was bringing out back then and she wanted um, to share her love of music and and help women find a voice in a time when things were pretty, they were still pretty oppressed. And so she was pretty shocking but she got her choristers to come back and it grew and became popular. This West Moon Choir is also known as the Angry Women's Choir. The members are rather forthright. Not only do they sing together, they have a session called The Furies. So what happens at The Furies? Well, The Furies is sort of halfway through their rehearsals, they do their normal choir repertoire and then they have The Furies, which is they sit in a circle and they all say what has really annoyed them that week. This gives them a chance to get things off their chest. It can be something huge. It can be something tiny. It's an opportunity to vent and it also feeds directly into what they call their angry women's choir repertoire. I take pains to say this doesn't mean that they're stomping their feet and shouting and singing anthems of fury and anger. It just means that they harness the anger that they feel from whatever's happened that week or from whatever's happened in their whole lifetime or generations of women's lifetimes and put it into music and the results can often be incredibly beautiful and very moving. Into this choir comes Freysonay Barnes. We're not going to say how she meets the women yet, but Busy sort of gives a very potted history of, of the other women in the choir. Who are some of these women that make up the choir? They're a stubborn, loyal collection of women, all who come from different backgrounds. I have a doctor. I have a woman who has a checkered history of being homeless and very poor upbringing and low socioeconomic background. I have a very privileged younger woman. I have the daughter of refugees. I like the way how uh, Freysonay or Frey sums it up, and this is a quote. So what you have is a rebel princess a hero lawyer, a badly behaved genius, a doctor, a dementing woman, a rising star, a dying woman and a murderess. And we know singing is the best 
medicine, Kiri, who had four husbands, I like this, she went back to study as a financial lawyer to save women being diddled out of their money. And it's her daughter-in-law, Rosanna, who's an associate professor in geology. What's Rosanna suffering from? Rosanna has lung cancer. Uh, terminal cancer and she knows that she's dying it's very clear from the beginning of the book in my first draft I had Rosanna very briefly at the beginning and sort of departing this world quite early on and then I missed her so much I loved writing Rosanna she's this feisty Italian woman so I ended up bringing her back via letters to her children and a list of uh, what she calls stepping stones to give to them that she wouldn't be able to give them anymore because she was dying. They're scattered throughout the book and it just brought her voice back and kept it, sustained it throughout the book. These stepping stones, they cover things like how to clean a fridge, why you should make a Christmas tradition of untouchable perfection and what you should do if your partner says this. Look, I'd like to ask Meg Bignall to read from page 227. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of Rosanna's stepping stones from her La Lista, stepping stone number 62. If a prospective partner, lover, says any of the following, run for the hills, run for your life, actually. I want you in my plans. Boys will be boys. I've never really enjoyed the company of women until now. I miss more than just your body. Are you wearing that? She knew what she was getting into. You're my whole world. You're being dramatic. Wow, you're so brainy. I won't ever change. I love Jane Austen. He's probably lying. Double check by getting him to name his favourite and quote it. (laughs) I'm a meat and three veg man. I shot a tiger once, but it was really old. Why are there no potatoes? (laughs) No potatoes. Look, it it just covers absolutely everything. (laughs) Yeah, run for the hills. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this West Mona, it's in a suburb of Hobart that Fresnay or Frey Barnes never really goes to. How did they meet her in the first place? (laughs) She's walking in an area that she doesn't normally walk in. It's a part of Hobart where her daughter's dancing school is. And she stumbles across a couple of disturbing things and and then she's hit by a car. Rosanna and Kiri are driving the car. That's how she um, comes across them. They're surprised by Frey's agility in this collision with the car. We get to know that she's also very good at reading body language, but her confidence as a wife and mother isn't great. Meg, can you turn to page 112? And this is uh, Freysonette Barnes thinking about herself. I changed my name, then I named our children after members of his family, Tom, Grace and Lily, which sounds like some expensive boutique selling children's gumboots. I'm like a poster girl for a settled life, and that hasn't come naturally to me. I worked really hard at that. I was never, ever a settled person. And now I pack the same sanitised, wrapper-free lunchboxes at the same time every weekday. And everyone tells me that my kids are so amazing and full of energy and focus, but no one acknowledges that they've got that energy and focus because they probably sucked it all out of me. I'm just a sort of ghost, not even a scary one. I feel proud by how well I iron Gill's work shirts. Yes. She's realising that she's turned into this perfect housewife and with a perfect schedule that she doesn't fit into. 
at all and she's completely forgotten her true self, which is actually a really badass, very skilled, very accomplished woman. I loved writing that. <laughs> she's so brave. And her kids, Tom, is turning into a music-centred misogynist, Grace, the best ballet dancer but after the wrong boy, Lily, 11-year-old, often 20, sometimes 6, knows more about what's happening in the family than she does. What does Lily know about Grace, her older sister? Well, Lily watches her older sister because she's in awe of her and she admires her so much and kind of wants to be like her. Grace is very beautiful. She's a wonderful dancer, a very gifted dancer. And so Lily's got her eye on her and she knows that something's not right with her health, her mental health and the way she's looking after her body. Um, and she suspects that she has an eating disorder, which everybody else in the family has failed to notice. Now, her husband, Gil, recognises <laughs> her wifely qualities. And I love this line, Meg Bignall, calls her the Honourable Minister for Home Affairs and Social Services. But she knows she's not a, being a good role model to her kids. And because the choir is in a different suburb, what does she accidentally see her husband do? She sees him with another woman. So Freya's yeah. into disguises, she's into surveillance, she's into investigation and perhaps her previous employment, which we don't know, comes into practice. She's becoming more forthright, especially when meeting the government minister for women and the Minister for the Arts. This is the handsome Paul Balavance. Oh, Meg, page 177. <laughs> oh, he's a shocker, isn't he? Oh. <laughs> he laughs at his own joke. You all know how much I value the contribution of women and the arts. My wife and I are ballroom dancers. We like to go to the theatre. I was quite the thespian at school, but I had to choose leadership over drama as I was footy captain and head prefect. So anyway... I'm very much looking forward to my new gig, but I won't stand by and watch the highly regarded Tasmanian art scene denigrated by one very outspoken group whose views are not shared by the masses and who must not speak for everyone. Oh, he's, oh, he, I love the way he, he, he came to his comeuppance. I had a lovely time seeking revenge on him. The choir rehearsed in a hall that is about to be demolished and Rosanna is on her deathbed. What does she ask each of the women to bring to her? Rosanna's theory is that the best person to tell your deepest, darkest secret to is a dying woman because who's she going to tell? She'll take it with her to the grave. And she's she loves a bit of excitement and gossip, does Rosanna. So this she relishes this time. So they're all instructed to bring her a secret on her last days on earth, which they do. This was a very clever way to get all the backstories. Let's look at the history of the Franklin Dam and mm. the history of the Salamanca Market. That was all blended in there beautifully and even why the connection with Mick Jagger and Helen Rennie. All interesting you know, little backstories. I love looking at years and seeing what events happened that year and linking everything together. So actually this year is the 50th anniversary of the flooding of Lake Pedder. And also last Saturday, and I went and attended myself, was the 50th anniversary of Salamanca Market. So, yeah, and they're all in there. The book starts with a review of the choir. This is a quote. I would like this choir to step out of their parlour tunes, happy place, and into something that better reflects the choir's unusual history. What were some of the ways 
that the choir promoted their last performance? They organise a rally, a women's rally, so that sort of takes off on its own steam via social media and it kind of goes viral and worldwide and gets quite, it gets bigger than they expected. During the actual performance, I'm not going to reveal exactly what they did, but it was fairly shocking and brought them a lot of attention. It became a most unforgettable concert with a performance that surprised and shocked some. But what did it do for Frey and her family? It was Frey's idea, the final gesture, and it was a way to to live by example to Grace that body shaming and body image, ridiculous and everyone comes in different shapes and sizes and that, you know, it, it's to assist her recovery really, but it also fires Grace So what I wanted at the end of this book was to make sure that the younger generations would take the torch, take Rosanna's torch, her children, Fresnay's children would be able to follow through and turn the waves of feminism into just one big river that will just keep going and progress. So I'm hoping that that's sort of what that last performance achieved. Along with some humour. Women Sing for Friendship, Fun and Fury in the Angry Woman's Choir by Meg Bicknell. And readers laugh and learn about activism for women's rights and how to be a positive role model. Thank you very much, Meg. Thank you so much, Jan. Thanks for reading the book and for all your thoughtful questions. And now it's David's turn. Anthropomorphism, the attribution of human traits and emotions makes Chris Flynn's stories in Here Be Leviathans both intriguing and entertaining. So, Chris, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Look, you seem to take delight in giving voice to not just animals, but things. What's the fascination here? Um, Well, I think anthropomorphism gets a bit of a bad rap. It's often spoken in kind of a negative light and I don't really understand why because I love the idea that the world is alive around us and doesn't really care so much about what we're thinking and they have their own purposes um, their own observations and we're just unaware of them. But also artifacts have Mm. a story of their own if only we knew how to read it and it's very elitist of us to think we're the only ones that can tell. There's a lovely standard lamp here in your studio what story could that tell if it was just sitting there this whole time observing every guest who came into the studio? Look, the first story in this collection, Inheritance. I ate a kid called Ash Tremblay yesterday, parts of him at least. The good bits, the crunchy skull, the brain, a juicy haunch. Now, the character here is a bear. But by the end of the story, he is leaving a legacy, a story to tell. Right. The premise here is that he, and this is based on a real thing that happened in Alaska, where a teenager um, during a fun run in the town of Girdwood outside of Anchorage took a shortcut and bumped into a grizzly bear and then got eaten. And the grizzly was hunted down. And I thought, what a great story. How sad. But it turned out that the kid was quite a bully in the local town. And so people didn't really miss him that much. So he had a story to tell too. So this, um, the grizzly eats his brain and then inherits his memories. And so the kid is inside his head. So then they develop a bit of a father-son relationship and you find out you end up feeling a bit sorry, for not, not just for the bear, but for the kid as well. But that, that notion then of inheriting memories mm. and that transfer mm. that can take place is intriguing. But 
you bring a new perspective on some traditional tropes through a lot of these stories. We have, alas, poor Yorick, of course, a reference to Hamlet, but we're talking a monkey. Right. Now, the first thing I need to clarify, where did these monkeys come from? Because in the book, you've got them from Florida. Did that actually happen? Yes, that's correct. Um, so there are, there are no rhesus macaque monkeys. Um, they're, not, they're not native to United States, but they were used in NASA's um, test pilot program in the early 1950s. But they were captured in Florida, um, where this unscrupulous tour operator had imported a bunch of them and then released them on a river. The idea he was trying to attract the, lo the location scouts for one of the Tarzan movies. And then they end up uh, being the early pioneers into space. But then there's this line, the punchline is, the first primate to touch the stars and return, the mm -hmm. paragon of animals. It's the monkey that is more important than the human in some ways. It was the first. Right, and... Um, forged a path that humans could follow. But sadly for Yorick, who was a real monkey, Albert Six, um, codenamed Yorick because they all, they all thought he was going to die like his predecessors, but he actually got there first. And he is aware of that, that he is basically um, forging the path and is determined to complete the mission. But our hubris, the human hubris, to wipe these from history in some mm. ways, to think, well, we're the first. No, right. no that's right. And, the, and these animals made the ultimate sacrifice because none of them were expected to live. Now, here's an intriguing one. Shot down in flames, at one part of this story, we have the voice of a Remington Model 700 CDL SF. Humans are simply tools. You need to have one to get the job done. Mm -hmm. So killing is the destiny of this rifle. You've turned things on their head here. Right, and, and that was a little bit of a play on this whole Republican notion of, um, you know, with the gun control in America, of like, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And I wanted to invert that a little bit and say, well, the gun is complicit in this uh, um, act as well and in fact the gun yearns to do that um, this particular rifle ever since it was created it is hoping that one day it will get the chance and is so excited when it finally happens well it's almost erotic when mm -hmm. you've got exactly. when it, it, it's done you know ah you know thank you for fulfilling mm -hmm. my purpose for fulfilling its destiny yes. yeah it's it's amazing but again it's turned things on their head well i think particularly with weapons you know, it's it's a nice easy excuse to say, oh, it's not the gun's fault. It's the it's it's the person's fault. But you need that tool. They're created for the purpose, the express purpose of shooting bullets that will damage or or kill. But some of these objects draw you in mm. as well. So once you have a gun, well, what would it be like? It it has an attraction. Of yes, its own. that's right. Uh, I think in the story, it hangs over the over the door frame. And the girl's father says, do, do not touch that. But it's, it's, all, it's calling to her. She can feel its presence there. But in that story as well, we have the voice of the creek mm -hmm. and the fire and the fire. I am the alpha and the omega. So it's, it's almost like nature has the primal voice. Yes. And that is also based on a, a real bushfire that happened up in Darwell country and um, um, it was a bit of a mystery how that fire started, and I like to delve into the mystery, but also think about how the fire would feel about 
being started. It, again, it is an elemental force that is always in existence, and it it knows it has a purpose. It does not care about us. It wants to it wants to consume us. And and the the creek, in some ways, you know, you're being part of the stream and the flow. Mm. But yeah, both are primal forces in their own way. And it is that very first people's um, notion of the land we live on having um, almost an identity, if you like, uh, having a voice, you know, having an existence that is um, apart from us and that we need to acknowledge and respect. Another story, you give voice to a hotel room, <laughs> which is a beautiful and unexpected term. The room gets to observe the lives of Diane and Hector, but the curious thing here is it is without judgment. Right. So you take us on a little journey, well, a, a sexual journey it in is, many ways. It is. Um, following the lives of the life of this couple over a number of years, the hotel un- room unexpectedly becomes an observer because they keep checking into the same room every few years. And so it has a, the chance to see a relationship form, see their, the, uh, the sexual issues that the couple are having, and it tries to help by being the best version of itself that it, that it can be. It tries to help them even conceive a child. But also, it's non-judgmental right. because they do try some alternative practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we see the history of their marriage and their partnership, and what then they conceive, shall we say, in terms of fulfilling their emotional journey. Right, and the non-judgmental thing is important because I, I think too often in fiction, um, sex is written in a very judgy way, and. Uh, and in a very negative way often. So I, I wanted to have a sex-positive story that's not judgmental of people's choices. But by taking the observation of a room, mm-hmm. it's that character doesn't have any predisposition towards what or moral uh, stance, right. which we are imbued with as people mm-hmm. in our upbringing about what is or isn't appropriate. We come to it with an expectation. And that's the liberating thing about writing in the voice of um, non-human or even non-living non things because you have this um, complete freedom to um, observe human behaviour without all of the hang-ups that the author might normally bring or other characters, other, other humans might necessarily bring into a situation. Now, we do need to touch on Here Be Leviathans, which gives its title to the, to the book about saber-toothed tigers. Hmm. But the reason I want to talk about it, not necessarily because of the story, it links with your work at Museum Victoria. Right. After my last book, Mammoth, came out, I was hired by Museums Victoria as their editor-in-residence to help create a suite of books um, um, to accompany the Triceratops exhibition that opened earlier this year, including giving a voice to the Triceratops. So my remit is to um, examine the objects and dead things and even and just non-living things in the, in the collection and try to bring them to life. But we now need to come to the last story in this collection, which breaks the mould. Mm. Kiss tomorrow goodbye. You've done away with anthropomorphism, but you've done so much more in terms of the way you're telling the story, who is telling the story. It's from the perspective of someone who's marginalised on the outskirts, both in terms of language and experience. Correct, yes. It's set in the storm drains underneath Las Vegas and in the abandoned casino complexes. I went there um, just after the financial crash to Las Vegas to write an article for The Big Issue and um, met a lot of homeless people who 
often had just fallen on hard times, but they were living in these tunnels underneath the city and in the abandoned um, complexes that, that were never going to be built. But now, looking at the style, you're mm. not writing in sentences. You're not necessarily writing in complete paragraphs. Some of the sections just end abruptly. Mm. Yes, it's very much a stream of consciousness of this character, J.K. You know, she's been traumatised and abused in the past, but is quite a positive person and um, quite engaged and wants to meet people and wants to wants to move on. She's sort of stuck because of something that happened to her. But I, I she was quite similar to a lot of the people that I met over there who clearly had some um, mental health issues. But as a as young child, her uh, reality has been shaped by her mother, who mm. was psychologically challenged and that's influenced her upbringing yes it has and her mother told her a lie when she was young that has really formed her personality as an adult um, and led her down a path of um, trying to discover um, whether there are creatures from other other worlds living out in the desert in las vegas and as you say it is actually quite positive she mm. forms a, mm. a relationship she uh, moves forward she makes discoveries but in the process you're actually addressing homelessness mm -hmm. psychological challenges illiteracy uh, graffiti it's 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 a whole other world right and it is probably the most difficult story in the collection to read um, because it is written in her voice very stream of consciousness and I understand if some people will start to read it and say it's not for me that's okay you know you're not going to love necessarily every story in a collection um, but I think for those who stick with it it's, it, it can be quite rewarding. But at the same time it's picking up as you do with all of the other stories be it a, a voice of a ship in there mm. that you've got or the bear or the monkey the gun you've got to take the character or, or as a reader involve yourself in the character become one with the character so it's the same sort of thing in many ways well it is and you know it's purposefully last in the collection because most of the other stories are from the points of view as you say of animals and other um, other objects and this is a human perspective so I wanted to lay the ground a little bit to say I, I can't just do the the animal thing I, I can actually write humans too but does it give it more impact because it's from the human perspective? I think so. And, I mean, we argued about it um, with the publisher whether it would even be included at all because they thought it was going to be just too difficult and too much of a contrast from the other stories. And certainly some of the early reviewers, people are either absolutely loving it or really not liking it at all. Well, the collection is here, B. Leviathans. The author is Chris Flynn. And if you want to know how a monkey or a bear feel or a ship or a gun or a river, this is the book to read. But as Chris has already said, that last work, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, I think is worth reading in terms of getting an alternative perspective on the way we lead our lives and the hubris of a lot of people and the way they think. So it is a University of Queensland release. So, Chris, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, dear. It's always a pleasure. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.